So James chapter 1 is where we're at. You can open up your Bibles to there. If you don't have a Bible, you can use the one in front of your seat. If you don't have a Bible to bring home, take that as our gift, and we'd love to have you have that. The show Survivor has been going on for quite a while now. It's evidently a big deal. People have really gravitated to it. The basic premise of Survivor is this, in case you've been living under a rock somewhere. It's basically take a sampling of Americans, supposedly kind of random, but you know they want to make it so that they get as much, most viewers as they can, and take them from their normal lives, whatever that might be, and go put them in some exotic remote location, and then give them different challenges and things that they have to solve and endure and see who wins. And they kind of do ever-increasing difficulty, and they include choices with that and all kinds of things. The prize when this show began seemed like a really much larger amount even. It's still a big amount. If if I were to win this, I would be probably pretty happy. But a million dollars was the prize if you won Survivor. So they are they are putting themselves through starvation and all this heat and sleep deprivation and all kinds of mosquito bites and things that they that they do for a million dollars. They're putting aside their personal comfort right now for a future prize. If you are a Christian, that general theme should sound familiar to you. There's things to learn from that, right? That as you're getting eaten by mosquitoes and losing sleep and out in the pouring rain, you're not doing it because that's the fun part. You're doing it for a greater reward. That's, that's a Christian message. The way to win Survivor, though, this is their little tagline, outwit, outplay, and outlast everyone else. So what the show does is it is it is designed to increasingly take people and turn this once happy community against each other so that there's only one winner at the end. And the show gets really ugly as people start trying to do that. And they are they are basically employing what I think. I think it's an interesting commentary on how we left to ourselves tend toward dealing with stress and problems and how we are trying to survive. What we do sometimes in the flesh is this, is at all costs to other people, we survive. We push ourselves out there first. Left to ourselves, that's called worldly wisdom. It's earthly. And the Bible says, we're going to get to this, but it's demonic. What we're looking at this morning is this. We're looking at supernatural wisdom on how to deal with survivor-like conditions. Now, none of us probably are stuck on an island today because we're here. But we're going through trials nonetheless, and we're going to look at how to deal with life's assorted difficulties. James chapter 1 is where we'll be. If you missed last week, James is a no-holds-bar, very quick mover, doesn't mince words kind of person, and so he wrote his epistle that way as well. And he jumps right into encouraging these people, probably his church that were a part of the dispersion. Remember, they were persecuted, so they got pushed out of Jerusalem. And he jumps right into hardship, pain, and trials. Again, doesn't mince words, jumps right into it. Look at verse 2. It says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, if you've grown up in the church, you've heard this message before, but if this is new to you, this is startling commentary. This is saying that in the midst of your various trials, you shouldn't just try to survive. You shouldn't just try to outwit, outlast, and be the last one standing. 
Instead, you can actually thrive in them. Pure joy in the midst of trials? Are you kidding me? I mean, this is revolutionary, different kind of thinking than we see in everyday life. Now, it's important to ask what kind of trials are in view. What is he talking about exactly? Do we have to be part of a persecuted church that literally was scattered away from their homes in the name of Christ, and that's why they're on the run to be identifying with this? I think he has big trials and temptations in mind. Here are some of the big ones I came up with. Death, your own impending death or the death of a loved one near you. Illness, loss, chronic pain, persecution, despair, ruin, emotional ruin, family ruin, financial ruin, physical ruin. I think all of those are in view. How about the little ones like a school test, a headache, money problems, car issues, and the like? I think that those are in view as well. And let me show you from the text why I think that. Look where it says trials of various kinds when you meet trials of various kinds. Later on he says, the testing of your faith. The testing of your faith. So here's what I would say. I think that some people are able to skate through, let's say, a car breakdown. I have, I've, I've, I've had a life of car breakdowns. There were many car breakdowns that were just a modern, a minor annoyance to me. But you know the times when life builds to such a degree and all of a sudden all the financial pressure is happening, the job just got lost, whatever else, and then that one car breakdown happens and it's, it just undoes you. You know what I'm talking about? You, you're tracking with that? Same kind of problem, right? I know most AAA guys by name. We're friends. You know, we keep in touch every time I break down. But, but, but some of those stood out to me as, oh man, that one in that season, really what? It tested my faith. My life wasn't on the line. I wasn't bleeding, per se, right? But big and little trials can test your faith. So here's what I would say to you this morning. Some of you are dealing with really, really weighty things, and you come in here with heavy hearts, and some of you, it's all you can do to drag yourselves in here. And I spoke with someone last week, and we just agreed, what a blessing to be with God's people, though, this morning. I mean, what better place than to come and just just sing the songs we've been singing and, and be around, even if, even if we remain relatively anonymous in our pain. It's just good to be with God's people. Now, I don't want you to be isolated and anonymous with your pain, but sometimes people need time, and just just walking with a group of people for a season of time before it even feels remotely safe to unload and to share. That's some of you. Others of you, though, aren't dealing with what you would call, you'd feel ashamed that, well, these aren't really big trials, these aren't really big temptations, these are just kind of my thing. But let me put it this way, if there is something that's testing your faith, this morning, that's the kind of trial that's in view here. And sometimes it's not the size of the trial, but but maybe the circumstances and the timing of it that just have you struggling with things. I want you to do something in just a minute, and I'm really hoping that many, if not all, in this room will take me up on it. It's going to take a little bit of courage. If you walk into a room like this, your plan, I know your plan, your plan is to sit there and let other people be up front under the hot lights while you sit there in the relatively cool and comfort of your chair, right? The second someone up here asks someone from down here to say, get up and do something, you get a little bit nervous, okay? I don't want you to get nervous. I want you to participate in this as a physical act. Sometimes there's something to the physical act of doing something that can really help. There's piles of rocks around the sanctuary this morning. The more astute of you have noticed this and picked up on it. Some of you are going to need to repent of being judgmental because you thought, You just didn't clean up this week, guys. Come on. 
They're there for a purpose. What I want you to do is this. In just a minute, I'm going to ask you to get up out of your chair and go to one of the piles of rocks that are around the sanctuary. Okay? I want you to pick just one. There's enough probably for every single person in the room to have one. Some of you feel like you'd want to scoop up the whole thing, right, as representative. But let's let the one rock, brick, chunk of concrete, whatever it might be, let's let that represent a trial or a temptation in your life, okay? That could be something right now that you're presently dealing with that's really got you on your knees and or really got you questioning or really testing your faith. Or it could be something that happened last year that, praise God, you've overcome it and he's seen you through that storm. And you go, man, that was a heaven. That was a big one. So get it? It could be past or it could be present. As you do that, I'm going to begin to read a very strange list. Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount with a strange list, to my ears anyways, of those that he would call blessed. Okay? So right now, you go find a rock, a brick, a whatever, take it in your hand and go back to your seat and just keep it with you. Okay? I'm going to start reading from Matthew chapter 5 for those of you who have ears to hear. And you're going to need to listen over people getting their rock or brick. Matthew 5. Jesus talking. He says this. And he opened his mouth to them saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Probably in most every society that I can think of, and certainly in our own, if someone comes up to you and says, how are you doing? And you begin to rattle off some of the things that we just read in the Sermon on the Mount, spoken or unspoken, they might look at that person and say, cursed of God. Not blessed. What does a blessing mean? Blessed means that you're gifted. You're endowed with this great gift. Oh, man, what a blessing that was. Instead of blessing, you might think, man, cursed of God is this person. And yet Jesus opens this teaching of the Sermon on the Mount with this, with this list. And then he goes and says what James now picks up on and reminds us of and instructs us in. Pain is an interesting thing. I've been studying about pain recently. I have several books on my library that I've read. I reread a few in preparation for this opening chapter of James. And pain is one of those things that is most universal, and yet it's completely individual. Here's what I mean by that. You could have a similar surgery. I happen to have just looked at someone. I'll look around so you don't know who I was talking about, who had a gallbladder surgery, okay? I don't usually bring that out in public with people. I don't keep my friends very long. 
But if someone else said, oh, you had a gallbladder surgery, I had one. There's a kind of kinder spirit there. And you'll start talking about the procedure and what you did and how you recovered and whatever else. And yet, pain is completely individual. You go through your pain. No one else experiences your pain like you do. Get into a recovery group for Alcoholics Anonymous who struggle with that addiction. You could get into groups that are dealing or struggling with the thing. But as universal as pain is, it's, it's also very, very personal. I want you to do something with your, with your object for a second. I've got a nice hefty one here. I want you to just look at it for a second. I want you to think about the fact that it's kind of heavy and awkward and maybe a little inconvenient sitting on your Sunday clothes right now. It's a little weird to be holding a chunk of junk in church, right? Some of you have a really smooth one. Some of you have a rough one. It's probably helpful to feel the roughness and the dirt of it. Just kind of think about your trial. Think about the temptation that that represents for you right now. Now, here's the question we're going to look at. Here's what the text is talking about this morning. How is it that we can possibly rejoice in this piece of junk thing sitting on my lap here on Sunday morning? What would it be like if every Sunday morning somehow spiritually we could see what we were bringing in by what we wore or what we carried? We couldn't just kind of put on our Sunday best, take our weekly shower and shave and show up, no, as the West, Old West, and just look nice and pretty for people on Sunday morning. What if instead we just had our gaping wounds open? I wonder if we'd have more compassion for one another. I wonder if there'd be a few ounces more of patience with one another. Right? When you see someone with a gaping wound, man, you just want to come and love on them. And yeah, they smell a little bad. And yeah, they're a little bit cranky, but you would be too if you only knew. Here you are holding your piece of junk, as it were. And we're going to talk about how to rejoice in it. What is produced by trials, according to verse 3? Look at it. Your translation probably says steadfastness, like mine does. Or it says endurance or perseverance, or something to that effect. That trials are what produce endurance and steadfastness. I wonder if we don't deal with our problems and our pains sometimes very well because we don't expect them. And the shock of pain is is actually assisting us in not dealing with our pain well. I want to show you from the Scriptures that James isn't alone. James didn't just mimic one obscure thing that Jesus taught on a mountainside one time, and they're the only two. Rather, the Bible speaks about pain a lot, and we're not going to take time to to dive into the whole theology of pain. But let me just show you a few Scripture verses. Philippians 1.29 For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ. You should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. 1 Thessalonians 3.3 Someone's come to stir up faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. 1 Peter 1.6 In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Love the word necessary. God doesn't waste our trials. If they're in our life, it's because they're they're necessary. He's allowing them. 1 Peter 4.12 says this. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, 
but rejoice. Fiery indeed. Take a tiny little match and hold it over your finger sometime. Right? doesn't take much. It just burns. And some of the trials that are represented in this room by our church family are much greater than that even. It's a normal part of the Christian life to suffer to a degree, to varying degrees. We don't do any favors, and in fact we create false converts when we give the first part of the message. It's been granted to you to believe in Him and also to suffer for Him. 1 Peter 3.12 That all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. I mean, just over and over. I could just keep going, but I've given you a few snippets of it to the end that it is something um, that's to be expected. Now, without wanting to cap on anyone who got led to the Lord from, from some sort of message like this, I'm going to share with you what I think is unbiblical way to come and approach sinners in promoting the gospel to them. And we have many tracks and kinds of methods that have been used over the years to kind of give the gospel to people. And I rejoice in the fact that people are constantly striving and pushing forward. Sometimes looking back on history, you can see some were more biblical than others. One of the things that you may have heard is that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. If we were to create a track, maybe some of you could get into the Christian track writing business. Here's what I think. I think that we should give that message, but what I know is that most every person I've ever mentioned that to or talked to about that, what a sinner apart from God associates that with is what? A better life here. So there's a massive disconnect. If we're members of the survivor game, and I come to you and I share for you, there's a little thing that Jeff Probst gave me. It's a little rolled up scroll. And if you read it, it's going to do wonders for you. And you open up the scroll, and in fact, you don't get to eat the steak dinner that was given to all the starving contestants that night. And you say, disconnect. My life just got worse because I was given this message. Not any better. And so God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life is a thousand percent true, but there's often a disconnect with a sinner hearing that, not understanding their primary need is to take on the righteousness of Christ. Listen to Romans 5, 2. Through him, talking about Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That's a good Christian track. That's an exciting part of it. That's a great part of the message. Here's the part of the message that sometimes we leave off, and this is what we should add as well. The second part of it. By the way, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, which will include all kinds of suffering for the name of your new Lord Jesus, just like he did. And then you could whip out a little photo album of Christians getting chewed on by lions back in the Colosseum days. Say, here's great-great-great-grandpa Christian, and he got eaten by a lion. And then here's the Fox's Book of Martyrs where people through the centuries have been dying for their faith. And lest you think that's just old, dusty history, let's go talk to some people who've actually... You know what I mean? And, and that's our heritage. That's what naming the name of Christ is all about. So we'd carry on in the Romans ch chapter 5 passage to go on and read the very next verse. Not only that, not only do we rejoice in the grace that we've obtained because of Christ, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces Endurance, there's that word again. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. 
Now, I think most of us could get to a place where we say pain is necessary, pain is normal, and pain is to be expected. But just like Jesus does with the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, read it. It'll blow your mind. It's not just tolerate your enemies, it's love your enemies, right? It's not just endure through your sufferings, it's find pure joy in the midst of them. Don't just expect them and think that they're normal, but pure joy? Most of us avoid pain at all cost. I want you to do something with me that involves you staying in your seat so you can be happy. I want you to leave your eyes open starting right now and, and just don't blink. Okay, now the second that I mentioned not to blink, what do you want? I'm going to keep blinking because I already did this in my office and tried it out. The second I mentioned blinking, what do you want to do? You want to blink. You've blinked for hours this morning. You've never once thought about it, but right now you're dying to blink. Okay, those of you who are really tough and, and strong, self-willed, you're still doing it. Zach, you're giving me a crazy look. Look, look elsewhere. Um, and 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 you're and you're you're trying to hold your eyes open. Some of you have already blown it, right? Accidentally, involuntarily, it's already just it's already just happened. You could sit there and get real crazy with this and just sit there and start trying to hold your eyes open. Now, here's what's going to happen. This is what happened to me early in this week. I tested this out. Uh, is it initially there's it's kind of a weird thing to do in your office. Initially, there's like this irritation that's there, but but eventually there starts to be a pain, right? And and eventually, if you were to do it long enough, I didn't take it this far, there would be excruciating pain and anguish. And think about this. If you left your eyes open and unblinking, you would eventually go blind. You would forfeit the use of your eyesight because you don't blink. Now, if you're exceedingly uncomfortable and have a strong willpower, just go ahead and blink, okay? If you want to keep this going, keep going. Let, let us know how it works out after the service. Here's the point of that. Pain is a priceless and miraculous gift. Pain is a priceless and miraculous gift. There are millions of nerve sensors that are not randomly placed around our body, but masterfully designed throughout our body, and the scientists are still working at trying to figure out what is all happening with them. Not only do they sense things, but then that is interpreted and reported, and all of that goes into feeling pain. Speeds of our nerve senses uh, sensors vary. On the skin, they travel 300 feet per second. Think about touching a hot stove. Your finger's away almost as soon as you touch it. Almost before you touch it, you're, you're pulling it away. Yet internal organs and other parts of the body, the pain sensors move at two feet per second. Very slow, and so it's kind of a dull ache, and you don't even feel it until afterwards. That's all been by design. Not only that, but they, they vary according to need. Think about the same pressure of a poke that might be on a foot that would hardly go unnoticed. It goes to your groin and you're in pain. It goes right into your eyeball and you're screaming. Same force, same exact poke. That's the different nerve sensors that are there that's designed into your body. Your body is most vulnerable without pain. Great little book that I reread this week by Dr. Paul Brand. He, he was a unique champion of pain. He's a doctor and he served a third of his life, roughly 20-some years in each of these countries, all looking at pain from different cultures. During and also post-World War II England, he served in hospitals and in, and in medicine there. He reports that pain in that era that most people, when polled today, look back on those times as some of the best times of their life, even though they were in some tremendous pain. Another third of his career was spent in very poor parts of India, and in some mountain regions that a lot of people didn't want to go and, and be a part of. He was a missionary kid, and that's where his parents' life work was. 
And so he spent much of his time there where pain is part of the landscape. It's such an unavoidable fact of life in that culture that it's actually met far less with fear and uncertainty and rather almost a kind of just methodical process. Like this is, this is part of life is that, is that there is going to be pain. And then he spent the last third of his life in the U.S. And in the U.S. he observed this, that people avoid pain at all costs or maybe at a high cost. Right now, according to most research, it's about an $80 billion per year industry to ease our pain, different kinds of medications. Here was his summary statements about these three places. He said it was interesting that the countries with the most advanced and accessible pain relief medication seemed most ill-equipped for the pain that remained. There's a kind of suffering and ache and yearning and pain that isn't helped by pain medication, right? And what he said was, here in the U.S., where all of that is readily available and most people have the means to get at it, they actually can't deal with the suffering and pain that some of these other cultures are. Like I said, he's got a bizarre view of pain where he's a champion for it. Let me go on briefly because it's a living metaphor to kind of unpack a little bit of uh, this idea of pain being a gift. His specialty ended up being leprosy. What he did was he began to work in leper colonies and he began to track where their injuries came from. If you, if you know anything about leprosy, what happens is they have something called bad flesh. They used to call it bad flesh and it was these bruises and boils and sores that would be all over their body. And the doctors were really mystified about that and they would treat them and they, and they would come back and then they would turn up elsewhere kind of for, for no apparent reason. What he began to do with his patients was he began to track where every single one of those was showing up. Another thing about leprosy patients is they have uh, missing digits and missing noses and fingers and toes and that sort, and they couldn't figure out what was going on with that. They were basically thinking it was this bad flesh and it was just kind of rotting things away. Dr. Paul Brand in the hills of India was one of the first to discover that the real curse of leprosy is that you can't experience pain. You don't feel any pain. So the bad flesh... Uh, leprosy patients were known to, to continually have terrible, terrible feet. And what he found was this. If you can't feel pain, you will keep walking at the same exact gait for miles and miles and miles without changing or subtly adjusting. And guess what happens? Your skin is rubbed raw. Where it's tough, doing it one time or ten times or twenty times, ten thousand times, in exactly the same way, there's no reason for them to change their gait. So they would have raw shoes and whatnot. And feet and flesh would turn up bad. With the missing digits, they finally put a post up and they said, let's just have someone watch all night long. What they discovered were rats were coming and gnawing away at the flesh. And because they didn't feel it, if you don't feel a bite, you don't pull your hand away. Do you see what I mean? That pain, your, your body's most vulnerable without pain. All of a sudden, he began to return uh, to this culture. Read in Bible times, leprosy carries with it an enormous stigma. So it wasn't just the physical healing that, that was needed, but all kinds of rehabilitation that was needed as well. And he began to, re to return to these people a sense of dignity to them. And he began to, to figure simple little things out. One of the things that leprosy patients um, had to do was they had to bring a cat with them. And guess what? Their digits stopped getting gnawed off. He went and found a cat that, could, that was a good mouser. And basically, that problem went away immediately. And he just began to, to pour his life's work into some of these things. I bring this up to underscore and to remind that pain 
protects you. It doesn't just protect you, for, pr- protect you from the external. There are certain enemies that are out there that cause pain. And kind of like a rat coming to gnaw at you, if you don't experience that, if you don't feel that, you don't know to, to turn away. You don't know to change your course. And you would just press on. Pain is a gift. But also pain protects you from yourself. Pain is one of the most effective and relentless messengers about need. He actually goes into great detail about blinking, something that leprosy patients often are struck with blindness because they can't remember to blink. Here's a powerful thought. They had in their grasp the ability to stop blindness by simply blinking, and he would set up timers and all kinds of things to try to get them to moisten their eyes once a minute just to keep it going. And he said, without fail, every one of them would start off with utter enthusiasm. They're going to do this so that they don't go blind. He could not keep them doing it without pain. This constant messenger that said, do this, do this, do this. It's for your health. He invented some genius ways to help them, but I'll let you read the book for that. Pain the Gift That Nobody Wants is the book I'm talking about. My son was just in the hospital for eight days, and many of you prayed for him and visited him, and we just appreciate that so much. I just observed in the hospital an interesting thing where pain was a blessing on at least two levels. One is this. He went in for an appendectomy, and some of you have had that surgery. He had a massive infection, and so that's why they had to keep him there for a lot longer. And one of the things that my son never did, I had to tell him to do different things. My wife and I swapped off being being nurse mom and nurse dad. I never had to tell Curran to stop doing sit-ups, right? He wasn't in there just like doing sit-ups. That's because it would have been far too painful. And he, he just didn't need to be told that. Pain was a blessing because to do that, if he just used his stomach muscles normal, like someone who wouldn't feel pain, he would constantly be opening up that wound. It would never heal. Instead, he rested and didn't do sit-ups. Okay? Here's the second way that, that pain was helpful, though. Pain was also part of the healing. The doctors and nurses made it quite clear that Curran was part of his own healing by how much he would get up and kind of push that pain threshold and, and intentionally be uncomfortable to kind of help begin to work the process of healing. If he laid completely immobile for eight days, he would be far less recovered today than he did because he took four times a day his daily walks. Even with tubes all over him, he kept doing it, and he'd push past it to be part of his healing. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Some of you are familiar with an anvil, a heavy iron block with a smooth face that you take some kind of metal that you're trying to shape, and you heat it up, you wait till it's soft, and you start to take a two-pound sledge, and you just start to crank away on this piece of metal. It's a great picture for some of you this morning. You feel like you're that piece of metal that's been heated up and softened and is now receiving blow after blow after blow after blow. And at some point, the metal begins to say, Why, God? How long? How much? Friends, my comment to you this morning is this. I really hope that you aren't on the anvil unless you need to. I hope you aren't on the anvil unless you need to be there. Think about Jesus in the garden sweating drops of blood. If there's any other way, Father, 
remove this cup from me. Think about David after Bathsheba. I think about Paul who's blind in Damascus. If you need to be on the anvil, then I hope you remain there until its work is done and you're made well. Perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You'll notice that we've kind of gone with a Western theme with James. And the people of the West were, at least in the movies, I didn't know any of them, but the settlers and whatnot were people of action. They were people of faith. They were people who understood hardship and endurance. This is from an anonymous settler who was writing in the St. Joseph, Missouri Gazette. To enjoy such a trip, a man must be able to endure heat like a salamander, mud and water like a muskrat, dust like a toad, and labor like a jackass. He must learn to eat with his unwashed fingers, drink out of the same vessel as his mules, sleep on the ground when it rains, and share his blanket with vermin. It is hardship without glory. I don't even know what vermin is exactly, but I don't want to share my bed with a vermin, okay? I mean, these were some hard people that settled our part of the country. And there's sort of a charm and a mystique to it, but the glory only comes in the history part way later. In the midst of it, it wasn't that glorious. So we're going to keep up with this kind of Western theme because it really seems to tie into James. I don't know that James wore a cowboy hat, but if they existed, he just might have. I want to leave you with three thoughts on thriving in the good, the bad, and the ugly. Not just surviving or getting it through. One is this. Know what your trials are producing. It says, for we know what our trials are producing. So know what your trials are producing. Jeremiah 29, 11 is an oft-quoted verse. It says this, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Think about this. God knows the plans He has for you. Do you know what your trials are producing? I mean, He's made it clear over and over in Scripture, not just in imperative statements like we read this morning, but in the stories and lives and examples of people all through the Bible. His method involves pain. It involves hardship. It involves suffering. And it's there that we discover, someone said once that grace like water finds the lowest point. We find God's grace just filling us up when we're at the very bottom and no one even knows we're there but God. And we drink deeply from it. I'm going to offer you some assorted cowboys dumb comments, which is cowboy wisdom kind of combined. I just made that word up. And here it is. Here's one. When you lose, don't lose the lesson. I don't know if you've ever talked to an old rancher or farmer or cowboy guy, but sometimes they have a way of just saying it in kind of an earthy, simple kind of a way. And I've come across a bunch of these in preparation for James, and I love it because it just strips away the pomp and circumstance, and it just kind of gives you a little something. I think some of us in this room need to be encouraged with this. When you lose, don't lose the lesson. First Peter 1, 6 says this, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Anything God allows to go on in your life is ultimately for His glory 
and for your good. Hang on to that. I mean, that is a, that is a promise from God. Number two is this. Run to Jesus in your trials, not away from the pain. So often we get into a trouble and we're so trying to get out of it. We're so trying to squirm off the anvil, so to speak. And our eyes aren't fixed on the author and perfecter of our faith. As Hebrews 12 says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Let me say this, only those who are heavenly minded will suffer for their faith in the present. You will not suffer for your faith in the present life if you're not heavenly minded, if you're not keeping your eyes focused on that, not which is temporal, but that which is eternal. It may be the most rebellious thing for you to run away from the pain that God has you in right now, from the trial that God has you in right now. For a little object lesson on this, go see Jonah on tips from running from God. Right? If God has you on the anvil and it's him that's got you there, don't scamper off of it. Don't run away from it. There's an African proverb that says, smooth seas do not make skilled sailors. He might take you through a storm at age 25 so you can endure a hurricane at age 50. I don't know what God's doing in your life right now. I have no idea the plans He has for you, much less my own life. But we can cling to the truth that God's got us. 1 Peter 5, 7 says this, Cast all your anxieties on Him. What? Because He cares for you. Beautiful. A hope and a future, not evil and harm. That's not our God. Cast all your anxieties because He cares for you. Finally, gain a right view of pain. It's either pesky, and that's, that means you avoid it at all cost, you silence it as quickly as possible with painkillers, and you keep on living your life the same way. Man, before you pop an aspirin to deal with your headache, stop and listen to your body's pain messages. Why do you have a headache in the first place? Right? Instead of taking antacid, figure out what you're eating and how much you're eating and what speed you're eating it at. And listen to the message that your body's telling you. It's a gift from God. If pain is just pesky, it's to be avoided at all costs. If it's profit, you don't look for it. It's going to find you, but you listen to it. Learn from it. Find grace all the more sweet in the midst of it and overcome it. That's the message Jesus offers to us. Now, here's the gospel. The gospel truth is that pain and suffering in this life aren't punishment for sin. That's already been accomplished on the cross. That's why we celebrate that. Jesus took the punishment of our sin. Hasn't removed all the pain. Hasn't removed all the suffering. Far be it. But He's taken the punishment for our sin. That's the gospel. That's the good news. I'm going to invite the band up right now and we're going to close our time with you getting up one more time with your, with your trial, with your temptation. We're going to sing a song called Overcome. And Overcome has a line in it. It's really taken from Revelation 12. I'm going to read Revelation 12 to you, a little portion of it. And then I'm going to read the bridge of the song Overcome that we're about to sing. When you hear the word overcome, I want you to take your trial, your temptation. It might be past, it might be present. If it's past, you can say this. You can say it quietly to yourself, or if you're comfortable, you can say it right out loud. 
And you can just put it in here and say, I have overcome. I've overcome. It might be something that's future, and the more appropriate thing might be to say this, I will overcome. Listen to Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. And they have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved their lives even unto death. You know what the bridge of this song says? We will overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. We're going to sing that four times. By that fourth time, I want every stone, rock, brick, whatever, be brought to the cross and left here as a symbol of saying, God, we will overcome. There's coming a day when the reward is going to be there. Let me pray. Father, we thank You for the instruction that You give to us in Your Word about pain, about suffering. I ask God right now that You be moving in the hearts and minds of people that we could grasp Your truth, that we could cling to it. God, I pray that the truth, that right theology, right thinking about this, the command to consider it all joy, would absolutely transform our lives that we wouldn't let the truth of it remain in here as a neat idea, but that it would utterly transform our lives, God, as we walk out of here and go through all the different cycles of this coming week. We pray your blessing on each one here, Lord, in each and individual way that, that they need it. In Jesus' name, amen.